after the 16th Street church bombing, there is a memorial service in Birmingham for those four little girls and for two young boys later in the month that also passed away the same day. But um, Martin Luther King Jr. comes to Birmingham and he eulogizes these four little girls. And John Coltrane hears the memorial service. He hears this speech and is inspired to write the song Alabama. Alabama is so interesting to me because it's not a vocal piece. There's no lyrics. He relies entirely on atmosphere and the saxophone solo to really capture what he's trying to say. Here in Alabama, I'm Beth McGinnis. My guest is Chloe Smith. She wrote a Yale University master's thesis on music in Birmingham during the civil rights era. Chloe and I spoke in my office at Samford University. You can hear birds outside the window, and you'll hear students coming and going and rehearsing music in the building. Before you listen further, you should know that Chloe and I talked about some hard topics, including Birmingham's history of racial trauma. We also talk about some powerful responses to trauma. In this episode, Chloe tells how some musicians responded to the bombing of 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham. If you're listening with young children, you should know that one of the songs we discuss includes a profanity in the title. Here's Chloe again, talking about John Coltrane's Alabama. Coltrane wrote this piece after the bombing of 16th Street Baptist Church. One of the most frequently mentioned aspects of the song in literature about it is the similarity of the saxophone solo to the cadence of Martin Luther King Jr.'s voice. You can actually find, like on YouTube, those put into juxtaposition with each other. And the rise and fall of Martin Luther King Jr.'s voice are mirrored by the saxophone. A couple episodes ago, I mentioned Chloe's methodology for her thesis. That's the way she's thinking about her topic. She explores streams of Black intellectual discourse during the civil rights era. Then she explores how music functions as its own stream of discourse. Most of the time, there's not a literal connection between instrumental music and another form of discourse, such as speech. But in this case, Coltrane lines up the saxophone solo precisely with the text of Martin Luther King Jr.'s eulogy for the four girls killed in the bombing. There's this article by ethnomusicologist Jonathan Henderson where he looks at visual representations of the recording and compares it to different sounds made by the human body in grief, like cries and screams. And he makes this move where he compares the sonic atmosphere of the saxophone with the human voice because um listening to this there's this very um like deep mournful tone to it and i think a lot of that is because it captures so well the human voice and like the human emotion there's also this extra layer where there's more upbeat sections in the middle and i think that there's an interesting parallel to be made between the eulogy speech that martin luther king jr gave where not only are we eulogizing and we're mourning, but there's hope for a future. 
Music is good at embodying human emotions. In the 17th century, some scientists and philosophers even believed that music could set off vibrations in the bodies of the listeners that would elicit the same emotions that the music embodied. For centuries, composers have known how to embed lament in music with slow tempos, minor tonalities, and descending melodies or bass lines. It's easy to hear a skillfully played saxophone and imagine a wailing human voice. That's why it was natural for musicians to respond to the bombing of 16th Street Baptist Church. Music helps us mourn. But like King's eulogy, these pieces do more than that. King mourned the deaths of Addie Mae Collins, Carol Denise McNair, Cynthia Diane Wesley, and Carol Robertson. He also challenged his listeners to substitute courage for caution and to work passionately and unrelentingly for the realization of the American dream. When Coltrane matched his saxophone solo with the cadences of King's speech, Coltrane referenced the whole speech, the mourning, and the challenge. Coltrane was noncommittal when people asked him about his political views, even though he's often considered a radical. Maybe he didn't want to be polarizing. The connection between Alabama and the church bombing is clear, though. It was more than political. It was personal. Here's Chloe again. But I think Alabama is kind of a different story because it's so obviously an allusion to this event with 16th Street church bombing. I think at the end of the day, it's a eulogy. I think it's a commemoration of those children's lives. I think the way that he uses his saxophone is pretty masterful in capturing that mood. Yeah, it's got a precedent in A Love Supreme, Mm -hmm. which Coltrane didn't come out with until 64, but was working on Mm -hmm. as early as 57. And there again, there's a saxophone solo that essentially reads through the saxophone a poem that Coltrane wrote. When we talked about Coltrane's Alabama I couldn't help but think of another piece by Coltrane, A Love Supreme. There's a solo in A Love Supreme that lines up with a poem Coltrane himself wrote. In both cases, Coltrane explicitly connects his instrumental music to a text. It's as if he's reading the speech or the poem through the saxophone. We may be getting ahead of ourselves, though. Let's back up to 1963 in Birmingham. In 1963 in Birmingham, it's a very polarizing year. 
It starts with the inauguration of George Wallace, whose famous inauguration address, he says that segregation is now segregation forever. He is very staunchly against the civil rights movement. George Wallace and his inauguration address kind of set the tone for the year. And there's a lot that goes on with Project C for Confrontation in Birmingham as Black activists are fighting for integration of businesses in Birmingham. There's also this longer arc about these integration in schools in Birmingham, where we've seen in 1954, the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court case made segregation of schools illegal. And Birmingham is pretty resistant to changing, to integrating the schools. And so is this Alabama governor, George Wallace. He's very infamous for, at the University of Alabama, standing in front of the schoolhouse door in order to bar the first two black students at the University University of Alabama from entering. There is this very symbolic stand against integration that's going on in bigger Alabama politics at the time. And so on September 2nd, it's Labor Day, 1963. This is two weeks before the bombing. There is a speech that George Wallace comes into Birmingham. He gives this speech about school integration and says, we're not integrating our schools, even though there's been several court cases. There's been several instances where President Kennedy has sent troops to Birmingham to try to enforce the integration of schools. There's three schools in the area, one of which is Graymont Elementary School, that are going to be integrated as per a court ordinance. And September 4th, there is a very violent backlash against the Black students who tried to attend these schools. There are white protesters waving Confederate flags. There are white protesters with really graphic signs saying, this is not what we want. We want to keep our schools segregated. And it's the father of a student at Graymont Elementary School who is the leader of the plot to bomb 16th Street Baptist Church. And so this moment comes after the early summer where integration of Birmingham businesses has already happened. Project C for Confrontation succeeds. The Birmingham activists get what they wanted with the integration of of businesses in Birmingham and things are looking better. And as the fight for school integration revs up, that's when this violent event happens. So it's really easy to think about 1963 Birmingham as this like one big flashpoint of those photos of police dogs and fire hoses and stuff. But it's actually pretty spread out. It comes after a lull where the activists have been successful, but there's this issue of school integration that George Wallace has has stoked by standing in the door of the University of Alabama by saying, making this very impassioned symbolic stand against integration that leads directly to the death of four little girls. This fight over school integration is really the key to understanding why the bombing happened. That's something that's so tragic about it, that it was four little girls who should have been attending, been able to attend a white school are the ones who die in this tragedy over school integration. Coltrane was not the only musician who responded to the bombing of 16th Street Baptist Church. Joan Baez is a really famous folk singer. She tends to cover 
popular protest anthems, and she is known for protesting civil rights movement era stuff, anti-war, anti-Vietnam, and then is, has been active politically even up to 2015. Her brother-in-law wrote the song for her to sing called Birmingham Sunday. It's a beautiful folksy sounding song. It's in the form of a Scottish ballad, and it's to the tune of a Scottish folk song. In this song, there's this move that I found really interesting where she refuses, she won't name the perpetrators of the bombing at the 16th Street Baptist Church. And she also never mentions the race of the four little girls killed or of the congregation. It is this very watered down, filtered message of four little girls died and it was very sad that it happened. And when she mentions the perpetrators of the bombing, she calls it, she calls the bombing itself like a noise that shook the ground. And then she says that when she talks about the perpetrators of the bombing, she calls them falcons of death. But there's no outright condemnation. There's no aggression. And I believe that this song was made for a white audience. I believe that there is this effort to elicit sympathy. There's an effort to garner understanding and sympathy for this moment without being too aggressive and making white people uncomfortable. But at the same time, it's this very strong protest anthem that anybody with the context of that moment understands that this bombing was about school integration. It was a moment where members of the KKK bombed and killed four black girls. There's this layer to the story that she filters out in order to make her message reach further. How does the Joan Baez song compare to the promotional poster for John Fess Watley's band? Remember John Fess Watley, the band director at Industrial High School? Remember his promotional poster for the band? Watley presented his players in a way that would be palatable to the band's white clientele. He constructed an image for them that allowed them to market their skills. Watley and Joan Baez weren't doing exactly the same thing, but it sounded to me like they were both trying to reach white audiences through carefully constructed media. Chloe agreed with me. I think it's a very similar move. I think that in John Fitz Watley saying, oh, this isn't the ear-splitting kind, we're very palatable black musicians... For Joan Baez to write a song about a racial attack and never once mention that the children or the congregation are Black, it's the same thing John Fess Watley did, saying, this isn't the type of Black musicians you're scared of. We're the kind that will come in and play music for you in your white gathering, and it'll be great. And I think Joan Baez kind of makes the same move in some ways. I don't think Chloe is criticizing Joan Baez or John Fess Watley for making the moves they made. What she is doing is recognizing their skillful code switching, how they adapted their discourse according to their audiences and their goals. Everybody code switches. In Black culture, it has often been a means of survival. It can also be a call for justice. You also look at a song by Nina Simone. Yes, I do. And this is the one that's kind of the most has the most tenuous connection to the 16th Street Church bombing. It's called Mississippi Goddamn. And I read in an article by Ruth Feldstein, she writes this really lovely article about it, that Nina Simone wrote this song immediately after hearing about the bombing at 16th Street Baptist Church. There's a reference, there's a few references in the song's lyrics that kind of speak to Birmingham. She talks about school children sitting in jail. So that's might be an allusion to the Children's March in May of 1963. And there's also this 
There's a reference to school boycotts as well, speaking to the integration and school crisis that led to one of the fathers of one of the students at one of those schools bombing the church. There's these references to the situation in 1963 without explicitly talking about this bombing. But I think one thing about the Nina Simone song that I find really interesting is this call and response between Nina Simone and these background vocals where they shout at her, go slow, do it slow. Remember that call and response is a musical alternation between a leader and a group. It's common in Black musical traditions. Listen to the resonance Chloe hears between this call and response and Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. And it speaks exactly to the same message from the letter from Birmingham jail, where Martin Luther King is getting these admonishments of, you need to slow down, you need to think this through, don't do this right now, this way. And there's a sense of urgency that we've seen from civil rights activists where it's, they're tired of waiting. I think that not only did the lyrics speak to this, but I think there's something really interesting about the music in the song where there's this rapid movement um, in the piano between like the dominant and the tonic, the, the movement five to one. It's just rapid. It feels so unstable to me. And there's also a lot of rhythmic syncopation, a lot of two against three. There's a lot of interesting things that kind of make this song feel unstable rhythmically and harmonically. And I think that kind of adds to the uneasiness of, no, we can't go slow, we can't wait, and it's a sense of urgency about it. Listen to this song when you get a chance. It's on the Spotify playlist I made here in Alabama with Chloe Smith. You can hear the rapid oscillation Chloe described in the low notes of the piano and the bass. This kind of oscillation is common in all kinds of music, blues, country, bluegrass, boogie-woogie, jazz, you get the idea. Combined with this song's rhythmic complexity and call and response, that baseline oscillation gives a strong feeling of urgency. So the musical language of Nina Simone's song cries for justice. The call and response, the rapidly shifting bass, the unstable rhythms all say, no, we can't wait. We can't go slow. Justice has to come now. My daughter recently studied King's letter from a Birmingham jail. She couldn't stop talking about it when she got home from school. King answered the white pastors who said, now's not the time. King wrote, we have waited for more than 340 years for our God-given and constitutional rights. Then, in one sentence that almost makes up a sixth of the whole letter, he unleashes a litany of reasons why the movement can wait no more. His readers have to wait through that extremely long sentence, but it's not like waiting in a traffic jam. It's the rapid-fire climax of a preacher's sermon that compels you to respond. Nina Simone's song is like King's letter. The musical structure conveys urgency, even apart from the lyrics. The 19th-century German composer Richard Wagner thought that a music drama should be like that that the audience should be able to know what was happening in the drama just by hearing the music, even without the text. Nina Simone may have come closer to accomplishing that than Wagner did. That's not to say the text contributes nothing to the meaning of the song. On the contrary, Nina Simone calibrated the lyrics just as precisely as the music, right down to the title. The profanity in the title and refrain commands attention in a way more socially acceptable language could never do. This is the first civil rights song she writes. 
it zooms out a little bit. It talks a lot about Mississippi. There's this 1963 is Freedom Summer, where there's this drive to register um, people to vote in Mississippi, black people to vote in Mississippi. And it's the same year that civil rights activist Medgar Evers is killed in Mississippi. And so she's kind of zoomed out and talking about this broader problem. But Birmingham and the 16th Street church bombing are the instigator. Another musical composition brought visual art into the discourse. After 1965 with the Sun Ra album, there is this large gap in music written about 1963 Birmingham. The next piece that we see is the 1982 piece by Adolphus Hellstort called American Guernica. American Guernica is this reference to the Picasso painting Guernica that is a depiction of this moment in the Spanish Civil War at the town of Guernica in the Basque region of Spain where Nazi allies to the fascist Spanish government bombed this city that was seen as a seen as a stronghold for oppositional forces to the fascist regime in Spain. There's this moment in the Spanish Civil War where a bomb is dropped in the market in Guernica, killing mostly women and children. And Picasso paints this very large grayscale painting that is very graphic about this moment and it is held in the Museum of Modern Art in New York City in the 80s, in the early 80s. And Adolphus Hailstork is a New York City Black composer who could have very well seen this painting during that time. And he writes this wind band piece called American Guernica. It is basically a programmatic retelling of the 16th Street Church bombing. There is a piano that is very prominent throughout the piece. There's a lot of extended techniques used with the instruments to replicate sirens and screams and loud sounds and things. We use the term extended techniques to mean singing or playing instruments in ways that are different from normal. Composers often call for extended techniques to imitate extra musical sounds, such as the sirens and screams in American Guernica. By the way, American Guernica isn't on the Spotify playlist, you can find recordings of it on YouTube, though. It's a very sobering piece. But I think one of the things that I found so interesting about this was the reference to the Picasso painting and to the town in Spain that was bombed. Because using the 16th Street church bombing as an American Guernica, it is drawing a parallel to this moment in Spain where women and children were the victims. And the reason the place that was targeted was because it was seen as a stronghold for the organization of Republican forces in the Spanish Civil War. And if we think about 16th Street Baptist Church in the same way, it's a place where many of the protests in Birmingham were organized out of. The mass meetings in the church were an organizational stronghold for the Black community in Birmingham. And the victims of the bombing were children. And it's this very stirring parallel to kind of compare the the Black community in that church, in 16th Street Baptist Church, to Republican forces in Spain during that time, and comparing the perpetrators of the bombing to the Nazi bombers in the Spanish Civil War. And so using the bombing in that instance as a parallel to another historical moment, I think is really interesting because it's not only a stirring emotional piece commemorating the lives of these four little girls who were lost, it's this critique of this moment, kind of putting it into a broader scale where this was a war. You know, it's like a very graphic military type of parallel to a moment that might not have been seen that way. 
Yeah, and the, another connection, just the fact that the Picasso painting is grayscale, it reminds me of what Sanra said about the chromatic black. Oh, or, mm-hmm. the future is chromatic black, yeah. yes. You probably remember this too. Sanra said he saw the future in chromatic black. It's a vivid image of his black separatism and Afrofuturism. The Joan Baez song that we've already talked about was actually in the 1977 case against one of the bombers for the 16th Street Baptist Church. The attorney general who was prosecuting that case was would listen to the Birmingham Sunday song every morning while he was working on that case. And so that's kind of the first thread we see of music and the actual legal prosecution of the bombers. If Joan Baez filtered her song to appeal to white audiences and to call them to action, this fact may point to her success. Who knows how influential the song actually was, but the attorney general listened to it every day while he was working on the case. Another song responded to the prosecution of the bombers. And so in 2008, there's a song released by Chatham County Line called Birmingham Jail. The lead singer of Chatham County Line named Dave Wilson said in an interview that he read about the prosecution of the last two of the remaining bombers who were still alive in 2001 and 2002 by Doug Jones, who was a student at Sanford's Law School in 1977 when the first prosecution was happening for the first bomber. And Doug Jones was able to pick up the cold case in the late 90s and into the early 2000s after the FBI revealed some documents, declassified some documents. And so that case, he was able to finally put in jail two of the men who had perpetuated the bombing after decades of them being free. And there was this problem that the FBI had the root, had the proof in the records that these men were responsible and classified them so that they couldn't be pursued for justice. And so when Doug Jones was able to get both of those men in prison, the lead singer of Chatham County Line read about the case and was intrigued and decided to write the song about the theme of justice deferred. One of the main points of the chorus in the song is, you've been free and now's your time to sit in jail. Here again, there's something about the music itself that speaks into Birmingham's history. Not only the lyrics talking about justice deferred, it talks about the four little girls, but the um, music itself is really interesting in this song. The harmonic movement is, it's kind of a tonal center of A minor, sometimes leans towards sounding like the relative major C major. And there's this kind of ambiguity about the harmonic progression in the song. So the uncertainty in the harmonic progression to me kind of represents this angst and the uncertainty of this justice that was denied for so long. We got this resolution, but it was so far afterwards that in some ways it's almost not even final enough because these men still got to live out most of their lives free. You don't have to understand music theory to get what Chloe is saying here. The harmonies create uncertainty, instability. We don't get the satisfying resolutions we want. 
The music embodies justice deferred. It does more than that, too. Also, the violinist for the band, I think, in this song, really does a great job kind of capturing these moments of chaos and sound explosion into silence with some techniques that are pretty typical of fiddle music. But he does a lot of slides and explosive portamento kind of things that really are jarring for the listener. And I think that musically, it kind of paints this portrait of the bombing itself and the uncertainty afterwards of waiting for justice to be delivered that kind of go nicely with the lyrics of the song talking about you've had your time to be free and now it's time to sit in the Birmingham jail. Chloe is a violinist herself. She's experienced in classical music and bluegrass. Earlier, she mentioned extended techniques, playing instruments in ways that are outside the norms. Musicians often deploy extended techniques for emotional effect. In Chloe's analysis, this is what is happening in the Birmingham jail song. The fiddle techniques work that way, too. The violinist uses them not to fit into a bluegrass or country style, but to create a chaotic and jarring soundscape. One more thing. Did you notice the reference to the Birmingham jail? Martin Luther King Jr. sat in the Birmingham jail and wrote a letter to white pastors. Now, Chatham County Line brings the discourse back there with this song. Dave Wilson, the lead singer of Chatham County Line, in the PBS live show that I was using for one of my references for a recording, he said that to dedicate this song, he says, the memory of everyone that lost their lives in 1963 and still lose their lives as the years go by in the fight for making every single person in this world stand on equal ground. That's his dedication for this song. And so not only is this a commemoration for the four little girls who died, a tribute to the final bringing of justice to two of the perpetrators of the bombing. He also acknowledges the ongoing struggle for civil rights and dedicates it to a problem that is still ongoing. It's this conversation that's not over yet just because these two men are in jail. Sure enough, the conversation continued a few years later. of the bombing in 2013, there was a service that happened to dedicate the anniversary of the bombing. So it was performed at the Al Stevens Center in downtown Birmingham. I believe it was over multiple days, lots of different events, but one piece of music that was written for this event was by Kaylee Scott, who was actually a professor of music theory at Sanford University when that was happening. And he wrote this piece called Band of Angels, A Service of Remembrance for the Children Who Died in Racial Violence on September 15, 1963 in Birmingham, Alabama. It's not an overt commentary on violence or on racial violence or on civil rights struggles. Rather, it's a dedication and a memorial service. Taking place 50 years after the bombing, Haley Scott was really um, aware of the context in which it was going to be performed. He wrote about this in the dedicate in the beginning of the sheet music for the parts. 
It's a 13 movement work for choir, vocal soloists, piano, and organ. And it also has spoken scripture throughout. Many of the movements are traditional um, Black religious music spirituals that he has arranged with some harmony and interspersed with relevant scripture. And so it's kind of this, it's a worship service in some ways. And I think one of the most remarkable things about it is his awareness to the context at which it should be performed. He talked about it didn't feel quite right to write a requiem because it's for a Baptist church. A requiem is a Catholic funeral mass. It's not part of the musical tradition for most Baptist churches. K. Lee Scott wisely chose to root his composition in music that was part of Black church traditions. And he said that he initially thought about bigger orchestration, but realized that in creating a work to commemorate this event of violence that happened at a African-American church, that it should be appropriate to be performed by African-American churches after he takes his hands off of it. And so using the orchestration of a piano with optional organ parts with a choir is something that makes this piece more accessible and makes it, I believe, more appropriate for playing in a church service, and it can be used for worship and for commemoration of this event. I think that sensitivity was something that was important in this piece. Chloe said one thing that distinguishes Kaylee Scott's piece is that it doesn't engage contemporary issues. It commemorates the 50th anniversary of the bombing, but there's no call to action in the current moment. There's a big shift with the next piece. Our next song is a artist. Her name is Amy Leon. She goes by Amira professionally. And she wrote this song in 2016 called Burning in Birmingham. That first of all, I just think is beautiful. It was one of my favorites to write about. She writes it in 2016 in the wake of the election of Donald Trump. And she uses the 16th Street Baptist Church. The music video for the song itself, it features dancers with a backdrop of stained glass windows while the dancers are dancing in ash. Like there's a very poignant reference to the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in order to talk about some bigger issues. One thing sonically about this album that I find so powerful or about this piece that I find so powerful is that Amira's voice is forefront. There is some musical accompaniment, but it's always in the background. And at many times it drops away to really foreground her voice. I think that for me, one of the most powerful moments in the song is when she talks about her voice itself, where she says, as the musical background ebbs away, this is the climax of the song. Her voice is the most intense. It's raised in volume and in passion. And she says, dear God, what happens when I lose my voice? When the sun refuses to rise, when my son refuses to die, when the jury refuses to acknowledge the history in my cry, when it's three days later and no one's coming. And there's this moment of very palpable grief in her voice. It centers her voice both lyrically and sonically. That's the center of attention. And I find it so powerful that she says, when the jury refuses to acknowledge the history of my cry, her voice and its volume and its history are 
a physical, tangible connection back to the voice of her ancestors. That this is a problem that's not just about police brutality during the 2010s. This is a problem that goes back to the Atlantic slave trade and to Black people's experiences on plantations through Jim Crow era. And I think that this moment is just so heavy because there's this conversation that she has about as a black woman watching her children die and watching her husbands die. And it's this sense of despair that is generational, that is historical. And it's one that to me, this just feels like grief, like expression of that grief without a whole lot of hope in some ways. The end of the piece as well is just really moving to me as the climax of the piece has eased off. She's no longer screaming. It's starting to ease in energy and the music has died away. And she says, you know, I heard somewhere that black women are impossible to love. And I get that because once we love you, your days are numbered. And the eulogy I've memorized line for line will be delivered early. This is still so real and relevant that it's not only a tragedy in the present day, but it's one that has historical connections back to the history of African-Americans in the United States. But using the 16th Street Church bombing as the touchstone, as the lens for this moment, really connects this history so it's not so isolated to the present day. There's this sense of tragedy and loss before So the four little girls in the bombing, their lives are ended before they really had the chance to live them in the same way that she says the eulogy will be delivered early for the many black men and women who are killed by police every year. Connecting the um, present day struggles of black people in America to this history is made more powerful by connecting it to this moment in Birmingham, which I think is just kind of a theme throughout all of these songs that the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing It's just, there's something so poignant about it. There's something so tragic about it that it really serves as a touching off point, as a springboard to talk about other problems and issues. Amira's song, Burning in Birmingham, is on the Spotify playlist, but you should find the official video on YouTube and watch it. It makes explicit the connection to the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. The song makes explicit the tragic reality of the struggle today. It has a power you can't put into words. It doesn't hold out hope. I asked Chloe about that. You end your thesis with a quote from yes. W.E.B. Du Bois about a faith in the ultimate justice of things, mm-hmm. which resonates for me with Martin Luther King's The Ark of the Universe is Long and It yes. Bends Toward Justice. Absolutely. Do you think so? I mean, with this song you were just talking about, this does not really end in hope. Is there hope? Where's the hope? Mm. I think that for me, the music itself is such a big part of the hope that I see that many Black Americans have. Mm. That's hard. I think it comes with a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of work. I think it's possible. (laughs) Yeah, I think that using the history to continue to inform the present will only help. That's like one of my primary goals as somebody who writes about this history is to think about it and how to inform the present, how to 
understand the issues that we face today in broader context of oppression. I do think that music is a certainly like a powerful tool to think about what that future can look like when things do get better and also a powerful push in their own right for starting conversations and trying to make things better. Mm-hmm. That's a heavy question. That's hard. I, yeah. think it, I think we have a long way to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A couple of days ago, I was rereading through my thesis and I was looking through the Sammy Lowe autobiography from, because I have pictures of it in my phone. I was looking through it, looking for something. And I found this moment where Sammy Lowe has had, had a conversation with the father of Carol Robertson. It's Alvin Robertson is the father and Carol Robertson died in the bombing. And he was part of the Erskine Hawkins band um, with Sammy Lowe. They were touring all over the country and Alvin, uh, Carol's father, wanted to go home. He said, I want to be back in Birmingham. And he left the Erskine Hawkins bands, which was kind of unheard of because it was this really prosperous career track. He left to come back to Birmingham and later told Sammy that he said, if I hadn't left this band, my daughter would still be alive. And also knowing that like one of the sisters, Sarah Collins, of one of the girls who passed away is still alive and writing about her experiences growing up in Birmingham. It's so, it's so immediate still, this history because those children are grandparents now, you know? Yeah. I think that's one thing that's really hard is just like remembering that this isn't just some detached history to write about, that this is real people and a place that I care about a lot. And yeah, it's hard. So much of this story is about tragedy, but it's not just about tragedy. It's about resilience, survival, the powerful ways music can speak to suffering and call for justice. If we are going to work for a better world, it's going to take all our resources. It's going to take composers like Coltrane and Hale Stork and Lee Scott who give voice to mourning. It's going to take artists like Amira and Nina Simone who call powerfully for action. It's going to take scholars like Chloe Smith who aren't afraid to tell the stories. People who have the courage to face the most horrible things about the way the world is, but who also have faith in the ultimate justice of things. People who are willing to work to help bend the arc of the universe toward justice. That work is hard, but it's essential. A couple episodes ago, I told you about Resma Menachem's book, My Grandmother's Hands. Menachem writes that trauma can be passed down from generation to generation, but he also writes that resilience can be passed down the same way. This is a story of tragedy, but it's also a story of resilience. It's a story of musicians who spoke art into tragedy, who mourned and grieved, but also survived and worked for a better world. These are powerful acts of survival and resilience. And there are thousands, even millions of other acts that are just as beautiful and courageous. All these acts of resilience help me believe, with King, that the arc of the universe does bend toward justice. This is a hard story, but it's also a story of hope. The music you heard in this episode is by two Birmingham-based composers, 
Joshua David and Blake Mitchell. You can hear more on their websites, imjoshuadavid.com and blakearmitchellmusic.com. They're linked off my website, hereinalabama.com. That's H-E-A-R-N-Alabama.com. You also heard Lord Have Mercy by Ms. Gloria Stewart English and the community of Marion, Alabama, and Where Has My Brother Gone by the Crossroads Group. Both are featured in Season 1 of Here in Alabama. Listen to that season if you haven't already. I've made a Spotify playlist of some of the music Chloe discusses in this episode. Search Spotify for Here in Alabama with Chloe Smith. If you like this podcast, please follow it, subscribe, or like it on social media. That will help other listeners find it. I'm Beth McGinnis, and this is Here in Alabama. Here in Alabama.